It is so great to be with you all this morning, and visitors, thank you so much for being here. Really greatly appreciate it. We got a really hard topic today. I'm not going to sugarcoat it at all. We have a tough, tough topic. We are talking about the dangers of lust and sexual sin, and this might be a really uncomfortable conversation for some of you for a lot of reasons, but it is so essential and so necessary to what we're doing. And I'm really thankful that our um, youth classes and our Kingdom Builders classes are talking about this in greater detail because it's so important for parents to have a big part, a big say in what is going on in their kids' lives. And your kids are going to learn some sexual ethic some way, so it's better that you have a say in, in what that is. And I'm sure some of you this morning have been burned or felt shamed in the way that churches have talked about a topic like this, and I want to be very sensitive to that. But today, I just want to be very clear and honest about what my hope and my intent is and what I'm doing. I want to show the dangers of this sin, but at the same time, I don't want to create and continue more shame in someone's heart. I want to talk about sex as a good gift from God, but at the same time, is not the key to living the good life. Our fight against lust is a big part of our war against the kingdom of darkness because the vice of lust has had a death grip on this world. And it always has had a death grip on this world. If you study history, if you study different cultures at different points and at different times, you're going to see that (laughs) there were some pretty sexually perverse times. If you go to Pompeii, for example, to this day, there are still very graphic, explicit images up there And men could choose what sexual experience they wanted to have. So this is not a new thing. This has been happening throughout time. But today, in today's world, in today's culture, we glorify and worship sex. It feels like every TV show or movie or video game has sex scenes or nudity in some way. And we can become very numb to that and be like, yeah, it doesn't affect me. And honestly... Yeah, you just kind of got to get through it, but the story's really good. Or with music, all the modern stuff it feels like, at least the popular modern stuff, has lust all over it. And for those of you living in the glory days of rock and roll, it's no different for y'all. So many tabloids are so sex-crazed and giving you the best tips to spice up your love life. Instagram has so much trapping and triggering content on there And it makes us play comparison games with people who have these perfect photoshopped bodies creating an impossible standard for us to follow. TikTok is full of sexualized videos that kids are getting access to. They just pop up on their For You page. And the longer that they sit and look at that video, the more the algorithm spits out more of that kind of content. More and more, people are making the key piece of their identity their sexuality, and feel a need to explore their sexuality and give themselves an identifying label. And we cannot overlook how pervasive pornography is in our culture. I want to read some statistics for you just to help you understand how serious of a thing we're talking about today. In the last five years, the revenue of online pornography sites has grown 58%. 
At least 40 million people in this country watch pornography on a regular basis. 35% of all internet downloads is pornography. And from a study done over 10 years ago, mind you, we don't know what those numbers look like today, it was estimated that there are 5 million pornographic websites. That's just one click away. 91% say their first exposure to it was by accident. 30% of traffic to porn sites are children. According to the Department of Education, 27% of four to six-year-olds are internet users, and 35% of those four to six-year-olds go to pornography. 80% of all 15 to 17-year-olds have been exposed to hardcore pornography and have had multiple exposures to it. 47% of Christian families report major problems with pornography. 56% of all divorces include an excessive interest in pornography. Of all men in evangelical churches, 67% regularly view internet pornography. And a study found that 91.5% of men and 60.2% of women reported using porn in the last month. This is serious. And you know, some people would hear everything that I just read, everything I just said to you, and think, where's the harm? That's the kind of sexual ethic of our culture. Do whatever you want, so as long as you don't hurt anyone. And this apparent flippancy towards a more robust sexual ethic, it may seem so misplaced and misguided for y'all, and though much of our culture's view on it could, could be purely selfish pleasure, I think underlying these habits is a more fundamental human desire and a need to be loved and to feel love and to feel belonging, to experience deep intimacy with others. In the divine conspiracy, Dallas Willard has got away with words. He says, intimacy is a spiritual hunger of the human soul, and we cannot escape it. This has always been true and remains true today. We now keep hammering the sex button and hope that a little intimacy might finally dribble out. Intimacy is the thing that we were created for. Created for intimacy with God and with one another. The problem is we keep turning to fake intimacy to fill a void that only leaves us feeling more empty. So let's start dissecting lust. First of all, there is a way to talk about lust that has nothing to do with sexuality. Like we can say somebody lusted for power. But what we're talking about is the more traditional sense today. And a quick distinction between attraction and temptation and lust. Martin Luther has this famous sort of parable talking about temptation, how he says, you can't control whether a bird flies over your head, but you can prevent it from making a nest in your hair. That's the difference between temptation and lust. Whenever it stays in your hair and it starts becoming a fantasy and you start obsessing over it, that's when that becomes a sin. And to be clear, temptation, attraction is not a sin. If it was, Jesus would be a sinner because he was tempted in every way that we were, yet did not sin. So it's about not letting that bird stay in your hair. Simply put, how we're defining lust for today, lust is the excessive and disordered desire for my own sexual pleasure. From Glittering Vices, Rebecca DeYoung describes lust in this way. The lustful seek self-gratification, their own pleasure, as a dominant and sometimes even exclusive end. This feature of lust, more than any other, puts it in opposition to well-ordered sexual enjoyment. 
Lust severs sexual pleasure-seeking from loving another person. Lust involves my taking and getting rather than mutual self-giving. The immediacy of its physical demands starkly contrasts with long-term personal bonds. And once sated, lust turns and walks away. When we lust, we want nothing to do with sharing love or giving life if the thought even occurs to us. Lust says, sexual pleasure is my pleasure. It is extremely selfish. It is entirely void of love. And as it is with sin, lust is a distortion of something that is good. So in order for us to have a better understanding of what lust actually is, we need a holy sexual ethic. We need to know what good is. One of the problematic ways that churches have addressed conversations like this in the past is we do a really good job of grilling into people's brains from a young age that sex equals bad. The problem is we don't do a good job of talking about how God's design for sex is so good. In the beginning, God created man and woman to exercise co-dominion over the earth. And the first command given to humankind is to be fruitful and multiply. And just as a hint, that is not talking about agriculture. God created sex as a very good thing. And good doesn't necessarily mean easy, right? Because that level of intimacy with someone else can be a challenge. But it is a union of two souls becoming one flesh. And the science backs this up. During sexual intercourse in the female brain, there are more receptors for oxytocin. And in the male brain, there are more receptors for vasopressin. Both hormones cause the person to feel more emotionally attached to the other. Even having sex just one time, it is a deeply bonding thing. It's also pleasurable. I've read studies and talked to people who've been married for a long time, and many of them said their sex lives have just gotten better over time. Which, that makes sense for multiple reasons. Because the more that you're with someone over time, the more you love them. And the more that you learn their bodies. And if people just go around having sex with a lot of different people, it's like you're starting from scratch every single time, just scratching the surface. Also, not only is sex bonding and pleasurable, it is out of that union that comes the possibility of giving birth to new life. It is a beautiful and sacred thing. But it is only fulfilling in the mutual, self-giving, covenantal love of marriage. Because without that commitment, there is no true safety. But in that committed love, in most cases, sex just keeps getting better. Marriage is a sacrament. It is a symbolic, fleshly representation of a greater love. And that love is of Christ and the church. Revelation 21 depicts this beautiful union of God and his people, the marriage of heaven and earth. It's a beautiful thing. So sex in its intended place of covenantal marriage is a deeply good thing. So hear me say that, and hear me say that sex is not necessary for human flourishing. As much as Sigmund Freud might argue otherwise, sex is not essential to living the good life. Now, community and good relationships are, but the apex of life is not sex. Jesus was a single celibate man, and I would argue he lived the life of greatest flourishing because he lived the life of greatest intimacy with the Father and the Spirit. Paul was single, and he encouraged any other Christians who were able to do that to do the same. One of the most profound doctrines of Christianity is the sufficiency of Christ that truly 100%, Jesus is all we need. 
This is something all of us must grow in. So sex, as God designed it, is good, but it's also not the key to life. Lust, however, does not buy that. When we look in scripture of characters that demonstrate lust, one of the clearest ones to me is King David. He's often celebrated as the best king in Israel's history, that he's a man after God's own heart, but truthfully, he was very, very broken. There was a time period during one of the military victories of the Israelite army that David stayed behind in Jerusalem while they were all away fighting. And in 2 Samuel 11, we read this, verse 2. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. And as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. So in this moment, he witnessed it, but he decided to linger. And he sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of his own soldiers. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. How often, if you grew up in the church... Has the understanding of Bathsheba been a portrait of a seductress? Like the blame or the guilt in some way was on her. Some commentators have even suggested that she was out in plain sight and maybe even trying to make a power move. But that is not at all how I read this, and that is not at all how a lot of other scholars read this. We don't know exactly how everything went down. But the power differential between the highest king of Israel and a woman who at the time her identity was based in who her husband was, was probably so great that there was no possible way that Bathsheba could have said no. And that's why I think there is a very good chance this was not a consensual thing. And Bathsheba is wrongly seen as a seductress. And this is why it's important to start here that lust is an us problem and not a them problem. I've heard whether explicitly or in roundabout ways, men blaming women for their purity, for their lust problem. I'm sure many of you have heard of purity culture in churches. The idea is that women are sort of the gatekeepers of a man's purity. You don't want to be the reason that you cause a boy to stumble and then go to hell for what you're wearing. Which, to be clear, modesty, purity, Important for all people. However, people can lust over someone even if they're wearing a trash bag. We cannot blame other people for our lust problem just as we cannot make everybody around us remove all the triggers of our life. It's something that must be redeemed within us and our hearts. And as we see with David as well, lust reduces people to bodies. It's dehumanizing. Lust doesn't work when the other person is fully human. David was excessively wanting Bathsheba for her beauty and body. And even after hearing her name, that she is married to one of his own soldiers that is loyal to him, it didn't stop him. He reduced her to a body. He had his pleasure and then sent her away. Some of the most tragic words in that section to me is reading, then she returned home. I can't imagine the pain of that walk. We cannot lose the humanity in people. 
When people view pornography, have a one-night stand, they are settling for an intimacy that is only based on the visual and a person's body. I bet if you heard the tragic stories of some of these people, it would make you second-guess or think again about whether you want to keep partaking in these activities. Lust has to strip people of their humanity for it to work. So continuing in the story, David hears that Bathsheba has become pregnant, and he starts trying to cover it up. So he brings back Uriah, and he suggests that he go home and sleep with his wife. But Uriah chose to sleep at the entrance of the palace, and he explains why in verse 11. The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear I would never do such a thing. Uriah feels this sense of honor. He wants to share in the the suffering and the hardship of his brothers who are living in tents. So you contrast his integrity and his loyalty with the manipulation of David here. It's pretty stark. And his integrity complicates things more for David, so David comes up with another plan to get him drunk to try to get him to go sleep with his wife. And again, he chooses to sleep at the temple evil. He has Uriah deliver a letter to the military leader, Joab, that commands him to put Uriah on the front lines where the battle is the fiercest so that he will be killed. Uriah was carrying the letter of his own demise. And as was commanded, Uriah was killed in the front lines. David essentially murdered him so that he could save face from what he had done. And whenever David gets word about what happened after this battle, He gets this really fake response. In verse 25, it says, Well, tell Joab not to be discouraged. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. I don't know how he could even choke those words out of his mouth. And then Bathsheba mourned because her husband, who seemed to be a man of integrity, was killed. And then we read in verse 27, When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Could not imagine the trauma and hardship of Bathsheba. She is grieving her husband, and then she becomes one of David's wives, who is the person who murdered her husband and also took advantage of her. So yeah, God is displeased with David. And then God, through Nathan the prophet, gets David to wake up to the great evil that he has been causing. Through this parable of a rich man who has so much livestock, so many cattle and sheep. And he goes to this poor man that has this single lamb that he loves like a child. And that rich man takes the poor man's lamb and kills the lamb. And it gives it to his guests as food whenever he had so much he could pull from. And David gets furious. How dare someone that's that rich and powerful take advantage of a person like that? And then Nathan spins it right back at him. You are this man. This one decision to lust and act on this lust led to a series of nightmarish consequences for David. And not just him, but Bathsheba and his whole family. It led to an unwanted pregnancy, him trying to create a cover-up 
which is a good reminder for everybody in this room that anything that you're trying to cover up will be revealed at some point. Then it led to him betraying and murdering a person who was so loyal to him and also the husband of Bathsheba. It led to the death of that child. It caused a rupture in his relationship with God. He surely had to have had a tarnished reputation from this and lost trust with people. It caused deep family issues for his children. And it set off generational sin. And though his relationship with God was reconciled, he still had to face devastating consequences from this lust. What started as a stroll on the roof led to the total rubble of David's life. From that one decision came a life of hardship. And through David's story, we see that lust creates wildfires. This untamed, destructive force that can feel unstoppable. People, even Christians, can critique other Christians for thinking that lust, sex outside of the commitment of marriage, casual sex, pornography, oh, they're not that big of deals. But I'm tired of hearing this lie. I have walked with too many people with sexual addiction. I have seen too many broken marriages. I have seen too many people battling with this deep sense of shame for something that happened to them to just be like, yeah, it's casual. Our culture may mark sex as casual and just this natural thing, but they don't talk about how it bonds you to another person. So if you don't have the loving commitment with it, then someone can just leave you afterwards. And that is a devastating feeling. Casual sex can also make you play comparison games in future relationships. It can harm future intimacy. It can lead to unwanted pregnancies and sexual diseases and massive problems for families and communities. And people may think pornography is harmless or that whenever I get married, all of my problems are just going to go away. But they don't realize that pornography is more addicting than hard drugs. It creates impossible and unrealistic expectations for real sexual experiences which only leaves people disappointed with real sex. People don't realize that with pornography, they are contributing to exploitative gender dynamics, the sex trafficking industry, and it leads people to seek more and more perverse ways to satisfy their sexual itch. Also, there's not much talk about how people who regularly watch pornography feel super empty because it tries to substitute something less for something more, which is true love and real intimacy. No wonder it leaves us feeling alone and unfulfilled and depressed and callous because it is truly self-destruction. And not to mention how lust is the main instigator behind the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement, where so many people have spoken up courageously (laughs) about how they have been sexually abused in their lives. And we know the statistics of this. One out of every 33 men and one out of every six women have experienced this. Lust is what's behind all these pastors and priests having all of these sexual allegations and abusive practices that often get swept under the rug. It's behind the locker room talk of guys that objectify women and just be like, oh, that's just how guys talk. No, it is dehumanizing and it is sinful. Also, lust is what happens within marriage whenever one spouse forces the other to have sex with them and quoting a Bible verse to do so. 
Lust is behind people who get wrapped up in romance novels or exotic books having this emotional affair or fantasy about it. And even if you don't feel the destructive fire of lust personally, the smoke of it is everywhere. Lust is not casual. It is not a private thing. It affects all of us, and it has devastating consequences. And Jesus doubles down on this. He says this about lust in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 27. You've heard it said, you've heard the commandment that says, you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman or a man, whether that's heterosexual or same sex, anybody who looks at a person with lust in their heart has already committed adultery with them. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, even your smartphone or the internet or whatever else that we're holding on to causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So Jesus takes the do not commit adultery command. He takes it a step further into the human heart. And he has a very serious claim here. And he's so serious about it, he says that whatever is causing you to symbol, you should cut it out completely from your life. And I don't believe that that's a call for us to physically harm ourselves. It is a hyperbole, but the message, it rings true. Lust is not something to just remain casual about. It is something that we ought to fully eradicate, wage war on and see it as seriously as Jesus does, and that it jeopardizes our souls. Sure, lust might deliver on instant pleasure, but is the cost really worth it? I hope that you're seeing with me today the damage of lust, church. So much so that you don't even want to flirt with it. And I hope that for people in here today that might have a secret sex addiction, that might be going through an affair, or thinking about going through an affair, I hope that you see lust as the destructive force that it is and repent. And you may have no idea how to really do that or if it's safe for you to do that. And you may be wondering, how do I actually cut this from my life? I'm gonna be honest with you. Lust and pornography have been a long battle for me from an early age. But whenever I was in high school, God really convicted my heart. And me and a group of students in my youth group, along with a mentor, decided that we were going to wage war against it. So we had an accountability group that met every week. And over time, God has been releasing me more and more from it. I'm walking in greater freedom, and I have been walking in freedom for several years now. And I am so grateful to God for that. Um, Thank you. But to this day, I do not let my guard down. I don't ever act like I've fully arrived, and it's impossible for me to pick up this deadly habit again. I still have accountability partners that text me every month. I still have an accountability group that keeps me accountable. And I still seek out to avoid as many triggers as I possibly can because this is not something to become callous to. And I thought about whether I should share that with y'all. 
if I should disclose that about myself. And I'm sure some of you wish that I would not have said that. Because there's this desire for pastors to be seen as these holy and completely righteous people that just sort of hover on the ground as they walk. But truthfully, I'm not Jesus, turns out. And no one else is. (laughs) And if somebody in here, just one person, feels a little bit more courage to share what's going on in their heart, to start finding freedom, then I will tell my story ten times out of ten. And by not talking about these things, we are contributing to losing the next generation. Because younger people want people who are real and don't act like their lives are perfect and fully good. So we cannot just pretend that this is not the reality of our time. This is not the reality of our church and our culture. So this morning, I want to share with you what has helped me walk into freedom in this area because I want you to experience the freedom that Christ is offering. The first and most important part of all of this is to do as Scripture says, to flee from lust and run to Jesus. Sexual immorality is one of the few things in Scripture that Scripture calls us to flee from, to run from. Get out. Don't even flirt with it. Don't even stay in the room with it. Run away from it. And you might be like, yeah, flee from lust. That's really easy on paper. But what I experience is that I am powerless against this today. And you're right. (laughs) This is not something that we can just pull up our bootstraps and willpower our way through. But how often do we pray for God to take something away from us, only to go back to the same habits, the same things that keep us stumbling over and over and over again and change nothing? Fleeing from this means growing in awareness of what our stumbling blocks are and removing them, as Jesus says, cutting them out, out of our lives. And that is part of why I have uninstalled all social media. And it's amazing how much less of a temptation that uh, lust can be whenever you do that. Maybe get an internet filter. Get accountability software. That might help you in in a deterring sort of way. And honestly, get rid of the internet Get rid of your smartphone if you have to. Like, it is that serious. But we act like it's not. But simply doing these hacks and fleeing on its own is not enough. If your goal is simply to stop lusting, it's going to be near impossible to pull that off. Because what makes lust fall apart is experiencing the indescribable love of Christ. Our souls are craving an intimacy that can only be known in relationship with our creator. When our souls are experiencing and focusing on the love of God, the other desires in our lives start beginning to fade in importance. To overcome our lust, we need the power of the Holy Spirit, and we need to run to Jesus. It's not just good enough to run away from something. You've got to run to him. St. Evagrius, who is a famous Christian monk, He ran away into the desert (laughs) to, quote, fight demons. That is so cool. But he left all of his distractions, all of the things that were causing him to sin. He ran into the wilderness, started fasting. And by the way, fasting is a great tool to fight against lust. Because what you're doing is you're building your no muscle. You're building your sufficiency to Jesus. 
But while he was there in the desert, he dedicated his time, he dedicated his life to continuously say no to temptation and yes to Christ. And this is really what spiritual disciplines are. It is doing what we can so that God can come and do what we can't. Each morning that we say yes to prayer and scripture and solitude and Sabbath and being in church community, we are giving space for God to strengthen our souls and to help us resist temptation. Another tool to help you in this battle against lust is to find safe, accountable community. Lust loves isolation. And that is one of the devil's greatest tactics is to try to get you alone and feel like no one else is going through what you're going through. And I pray that after today and me reading all those statistics for you, you know you are not alone in what you are going through. And you may be terrified that if you confess and you seek help, people are going to judge you, cancel you, ruin your life, whatever. But you would be surprised how quick people are to help and support and how much they're going through a lot of the same stuff that you are. I was a part of an accountability group before in which one of the people in there who had a serious pornography addiction, he said, I have no idea how to overcome this. But what I do know is that when I'm with you guys, lust isn't even a threat. All of us in our lives, we need a Nathan. We need someone to hold us accountable. All of us, sex addiction or not, we need real, safe, loving community where we can be vulnerable and confess our brokenness. Not to be met with judgment, but to be met with love. Because true love makes lust crumble. So it is imperative for all of us to find that community. And today, I want you to know that there's a recovery group that meets here on Sunday mornings before church. If you want to start walking into freedom. And there are AA groups, there are Celebrate Recovery groups all over the place in this community. And there are a lot of good therapists that you can talk to. And we have recommendations for that as well. In 2024, we're going to be launching discipleship groups, which are going to have an accountability component to it which creates that safe, trusting space to be vulnerable and find the healing and transformation. We're really excited about those. There are so many different ways for you to get into community that is loving and trusting and safe. And I want to offer my email. And I'm sure many people in here would love to talk with you if you want to grow in that healing. But please, hear my desperate cry. Do not go through what you are going through alone. You cannot do it. You cannot sheer willpower your way out of this stuff. Don't wait until your life turns to rubble before you confess your sin and find healing. So this morning I've talked a lot about the danger of lust, and it is dangerous. It's not something to mess around with. And yes, the consequence of this sin is devastating. It can destroy your reputation, your family, your community. It can make you feel just this deep, deep layer of shame. But here's the truth. Your story isn't over. This morning, God doesn't want you to feel shame. And he doesn't want you to conceal what you're going through and act like your life is perfect. It will be revealed one day. God wants you to experience freedom this morning. And the truth is, church, though we may feel so stuck and hopeless, like we have nowhere to go. The truth is, Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. And that changes everything. 
The power of sin is gone. The kingdom of darkness is dying and will have its final day soon. In Jesus, there is freedom. In Christ, we are free indeed. And we know that what's coming is 100% full-on deliverance in your life. Pure salvation in every way. There will be freedom in your life from what you are experiencing today. It is a promise. It will happen. And this morning, I believe Jesus wants to free you from your shame. And free you from the vice of lust. And I want to encourage each of you again, if God is stirring something up in your hearts, do not just let that fester inside and keep it concealed. I'm going to ask our shepherds and prayer team to go ahead and go around the room here. And again, if you're needing community, if you're needing someone to confess to, there are so many different ways to do that. Recovery groups, AA, therapy, spiritual direction, a pastor, just a small group of people, right? There are so many different ways that that can look, but I beg you to please, please find that community. And I want to end this morning for God to come in and do that which we cannot do. So if you would please close your eyes with me. And we're going to do a little imaginative um, exercise. If you're familiar with John chapter 8, it's a story of a woman caught in adultery. And in this situation, there's a crowd of angry people that bring her and throw her to the ground and is trying to get Jesus to condemn her. And I want you this morning to put yourself in her shoes. Imagine yourself there. You know the shame that you feel. You know the sin in your life. And everyone is accusing you. The circle is getting tighter. Saying all sorts of nasty things. Calling you names. Reminding you about this evil thing that you've done. And calling for your death and condemnation. And as they're closing in. And as your face is just stooped to the floor. Jesus masterfully creates space. He masterfully makes people walk away by saying, let the one who is without sin be the first to cast the stone. And one by one, you watch as everybody in that crowd starts walking away. Jesus created space for you. And more and more as people are walking away, start feeling a little bit more relief, a little bit more freedom, that that voice in your head, the accuser, is walking away. And Jesus asks you the question, where are they? Is there no one left to condemn you? And you take one more look around, and you see that no one is left. And you feel this immense weight off of your shoulders. And then you reply, no one. They're all gone. And Jesus looks at you with tears in his eyes. Behold his face. 
And he says, neither do I condemn you. Walk into freedom. Walk into newness of life. Go and sin no more. Jesus, help us. Help us to reject our sin. Help us to run to you. Help us to find the freedom that you are offering us. And we confess in our hearts, Lord, have mercy on us, O God, according to your unfailing love. Blot out our sins. Wash us clean from our guilt. Against you and you alone have we sinned. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and help us walk in newness of life.